Good morning, church. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a member here at Redemption, and I'll be reading God's word with you this morning. And it comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 16 through 2, 26. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness, madness and folly. I perceived that this is also but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I, ha I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines to delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom, rema wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for the heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward, reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that thy hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. To the fool, to the fool will happen to him me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise die, dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and, striving, and a striving after wind." I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or, or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all my toil of of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. 
This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, Stephanie. When my daughter Catherine was in high school, she um, became she started working at Collectivo part time, <clears throat> and eventually became a barista. And this had a big impact on our family, believe it or not, on me personally. Um, we had never been part of the coffee shop scene. Uh, we just couldn't afford those expensive drinks, you know. And so it wasn't part of our family, except for on vacations or special occasions. Um, but when she became a barista, there was a great employee benefit at Collectivo, and that was that when she was working, family members could get a free drink. And so, you know, we had to partake of that. And, um, and she started saying, Dad, you should try this drink, and Dad, you should try this drink. And so I would, and we'd try different things. And then one day she said, oh, Dad, you got to try a matcha latte with oat milk and honey. And I thought I had discovered the drink of the promised land, you know, oat milk and honey. Um, and so I really loved that drink. And so I started finding myself, whenever she was working, I'd say, when are you working this week? You know, I'd kind of swing by and, <laughs> and get an oat, uh, a matcha latte with oat milk and honey. And then the wonderful thing happened. She worked full time during the summer. And, uh, and I thought, this, this is my chance to get a little piece of the good life, right? I can have a matcha latte with oat milk and honey every single day. And uh, so that's what I did, actually. And, and, you, <laughs> and you can imagine what happened, right? This little bit of the good life that I thought was going to make me so much happier, I actually got sick of matcha lattes with oat milk and honey. I had too many of them. So that by the end of the summer, I, I almost hated them, right? I, I didn't drink one for many, many months, and I've never been able to enjoy that drink like I did back at the beginning. And life is kind of like that, isn't it? We all go through life, and we experience things that give us pleasure and happiness, and we think, I'll try to get a little more of that, and that'll make me happier. That'll make my life better. But often, the more we pursue things, they elusively slip from our grasp. We are all pursuing the good life in, to one degree or another, but it often seems like a wild goose chase, and at the end, there's no goose. 
This may be part of what Ecclesiastes describes as what is crooked in the world or what is the unhappy or evil business that God has given, us to, given to man that we looked at last week in chapter 1. And the question is, what is the good life? How do we find it? How are, we pers- how are you pursuing it in your personal life experience? This is the search for the good life, and it's what we find Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes, searching for in our passage today. Now, just like last week, he's going to make an observation of vanity. It's his second observation. Last week, we saw the first observation of vanity, which was all work, no gain. And today, it's a more personal observation of of his own personal experience. And what he's going to tell us here is that the more wisdom and knowledge we get in life, sometimes it's the more sor- it results in more sorrow and vexation or frustration. This new section begins in verse 16 of chapter 1 where we read Solomon saying, I said in my heart. Right? The word heart is important here. It's going to occur 13 times in this passage. And and Solomon is welcoming, welcoming, welcoming us into his private world, his thought life. That's what the heart is. It probably would be better translated mind, but it's that inner dialogue that we have, right? And it, and it includes not just our thoughts, but our emotions, our will, our passions. And so Solomon is saying here, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had here it is, great experience of wisdom and knowledge. That's what he's going to describe for us in this this passage. This great experience of wisdom and knowledge. But he tells us up front what it all ended up in, in verse 18. This is his kind of thesis statement. In much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge also increases in sorrow. That's his thesis, and now he tells us about his great search in verses 1 through 11. Now, we're going to see that he did all kinds of things. He just did about everything that he could, right? And what was his goal? What was he trying to accomplish? He tells us in verse 3b that he did all this till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. That's what he was searching for. What is it good? What's good for people to do? I'm going I'm to go out and I'm going to find the very best thing that people can give their lives to. Now, have you ever asked this question? What should I give myself to? My heart to? My devotion to? What is worth my best effort? I only get one life, right? I don't want to waste it. How, how can I best spend my life? So that's what Solomon was pursuing here. And we see in these verses, verses 1 through 9, this flurry of activity, right? Notice the action word. Notice the verbs. And this reminds us of last week's passage when he talked about the sun and the wind and the hydrological cycles, how it goes around and around and around, but nothing in the earth changes, right? And so now we're going to see all of Solomon's activities and his busyness. And we read these verbs, I tested, I searched. I made, I built, I made, I made, I bought, I had, I gathered, I got, right? He had the wisdom and the resources to literally build an empire. 
And that's what he did. He was king of, of Israel. He was king in Jerusalem, the greatest king that Israel ever had. We, if we go to 1 Kings, uh, we read that Solomon uh, was the one who built the temple of God, which some consider one of the wonders of the ancient world. It took him seven years to build the temple. And he even built a greater palace that took him 12 years to build. We read that he had 186,000 people working for him that he had to manage. He was working with other kings and other nations to get lumber and, and uh, stones and, and, and whatever he needed for building materials. He built many houses, had many building projects. He, we read here about parks and gardens and, and animals, maybe zoos, you know. He, and, and, and at the same time, he was king and he was leading Israel to the highest point of peace and prosperity that they ever knew. And so he was a very high achiever. He says this in verse 9. He says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And, and here's, the, here's what he did, right? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept myself from no pleasure. Wouldn't that be great? That was his experience. That was this great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And all the time he said, my wisdom was with me. He was reflecting. What is, what, what is, is the best thing to do in life, right? He had wine. He had women. He had comedians. He had bands. He had real estate. He had business. Right? He was delving into everything. And then we read at the end of verse 10. He says, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. It's a little anticlimactic, isn't it? When I read that, I think of the little bit of pleasure you have at the end of a big project. Have you ever had some kind of remodeling project that you wanted to do? Maybe remodel your kitchen or your bath, you know, and you get excited about it. You're like, we, we need to do this. And maybe you have some, some discussions with your spouse and maybe some arguments about what you should do. I, it's, that hasn't happened to me. I've just heard it happens to people. Um, <laughs> you know, and then you... Uh, you start making a plan and you start buying materials and you start, and then, and then you set the day when you're going to do it and you demo it and then you start building it. I'm a contractor, so I like to do the projects myself. And so you're working, 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 anticipating what it's going to look like when it's done. And then you get your final checklist, you check, 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 and you check the last thing off and you stand back and you take a big deep breath and you're like, yes, right? You feel that pleasure, you feel that satisfaction and then it disappears like your breath in the winter air, right? And life goes on. I think that's what Solomon's talking about. That was his reward. He had some pleasure. But notice what he says in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing to be gained. That's his, that was the theme we heard last week, right? All work, no gain. That's what he said was the conclusion. This was probably his midlife crisis, probably 20, 25 years into this grand experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, why does he say that? Well, he explains it in the following verses. He talks about what it means that he says there was no gain in verses 12 to 23. And he notes two evils that he ran into in his great experience. And the first evil is this. The wise die and are forgotten, just like the fool. Notice verses 12 through 17. 
So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Notice he adds, he adds madness here. And we're going to see, it's going to seem like some of the things he says are kind of mad or kind of crazy. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for of the wise and of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after a wind. No matter how you live, Everything you gain is lost in death. And he saw this ultimately means there's no gain. Now he recognizes that there's more gain being a wise person than a fool, right? You can, wise people can accomplish more. And yet he recognizes it's just a short-term gain that makes no difference in the end. And, and we notice here something that Kohelet feels like there should be something more. There should especially be something more for the wise person, right? Something more long-term, something to be remembered for. Now, we all struggle with the temptation to think that some people are a little better than some other people, right? The more we achieve, the higher we place ourselves on the achievement scale, we can think we are more valuable to others and to society. The Bible calls this the pride of life. The highest achievers can think they are lords of the earth far above the common person, but at some point, they too realize that it's all a lie because at the end of the day, they end up just the same as the common person. They too die and are forgotten. The divisions we entertain during our lifetime are ultimately irrelevant. We all die, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. And when Solomon thought about this, it made him ask this question, why have I been so very wise? Now, we may be tempted to think something was wrong with Solomon, right? I mean, he had this incredible lifestyle. He could do whatever he wanted. We may say, come on, man, stop complaining, Solomon. But that is the point he is trying to make. He too thought that he, of all people, would find the secret of the good life but it was all so disappointing. Remember that his life's work, all that, all that he had done, his heart was wrapped up into all of it. And this was his treasure. It reminds us of the words of Jesus. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Solomon's heart was wrapped up in all that he had done. And when he saw death approaching to take away his treasure, he hated all that he had done. That's the first evil. The wise die and are forgotten just like the fool. The second evil is, who gets all my stuff? Who gets all my stuff? Verses 18 to 23. 
Notice he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he, with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of, and here he goes back to the words that he had in verse 18 of chapter 1, all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Solomon points us to a struggle here, and that is that the greater the success someone experiences, the bigger empire that they build, the more difficult it is for someone to take it over from them when they're gone. This is the problem of wealth transmission. It's a very common problem among wealthy and successful people. It's a huge concern of theirs. Now, you would think, what difference does it make after you die, right? Who cares what happens after you die? And yet, wealthy people do, again, because their heart is wrapped up in this. They want to believe, they want to think that it will be preserved indefinitely. We see this sometimes even with megachurches, right? There's a person who's very skilled and talented. They build this huge megachurch, and yet when they go off the scene, when they retire, when they're gone, no one can come in and fill their shoes, there's a proverb, maybe you've heard it, it's, it goes like this, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. You ever heard that? It's actually quite common, it's common among wealthy people in particular, and it's the idea that it usually takes about three generations. You know, you start out with someone that's wearing shirt sleeves, it's kind of poor, and they become successful, they build some wealth, and the second generation usually preserves it, but by the third generation, it's lost, and the descendants are back to shirt sleeves. And this is a common profit around the world. In, in China, it's from rice paddies to rice paddies in three generations. And in Ireland, it's from clogs to clogs. You know, you, you can find this in almost every society. Now, we see this is what happened in Solomon's case, right? His father, David, was a poor shepherd boy, he, who had risen to prominence to become king and establish the kingdom of Israel to its greatest point at that time. And then Solomon took it and expanded it even further. But then what happened in the third generation with Solomon's sons, Rehoboam? He was a fool. He, lost it. he almost lost it all. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel defected. There was civil war between them. And then the king of Egypt came and, and, and took all the treasures of the temple and of the palace. And he was left almost with nothing. So by the third generation, it was only by the grace of God that David's dynasty survived at all. And so, you see, death removes all control over all we work for. Someone who did not work for our treasure gets to enjoy it. And they probably won't have the wisdom necessary to maintain it. And Solomon saw this as a vanity, and he calls it a great evil. Man does not control his stuff after he dies. This, again, is madness, right? You'd think, Solomon, what do you care? Why does this bother you? And yet it did, because his heart was wrapped up into it. 
Now, in verses 24 to 28, Solomon makes a complete turnaround here. And this is one of, this begins the better than statements of Ecclesiastes. And this is, I love this part of Ecclesiastes, and you really want to get this part. I mean, everything's kind of depressing up to now, but this is the good stuff right here. And so notice what he says in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This is kind of the answer to the question that he was searching for. What is good for mankind to do during his few days on life? And this is what he's saying. Hey, enjoy your work. Enjoy life. And then notice what he says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. Now God, the main character of the book of Ecclesiastes, appears here for the first time in this passage. He had not been mentioned throughout Solomon's great experience. But now Solomon mentions God four times in these three verses. And he says that, 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 that God gives this enjoyment. Notice what he says even further in verse 25. For apart from him... Who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Saying without God, it's impossible. But notice the gift that God gives. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. This is the antithesis to what Solomon has been describing. Remember, he said, the more wisdom, the more sorrow. The more knowledge, the more vexation, right? But here he's, he's recognizing that there is another possibility in life. It probably wasn't his experience, but he was able to step back and look around and see that even though he didn't experience, there were others in his life that did experience this. Wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Now, it's, this is a fascinating passage, and you wonder what was going through his mind, right? He recognizes that this wasn't his experience, he was maybe the sinner who was gathering and collecting for the ones who please God, right? Maybe many people said, Solomon, we're so thankful to God for you. You've been such a blessing to our nation, right? You've brought our, so much peace and prosperity, and that was true. And yet Solomon wasn't, his own personal experience was one of sorrow and vexation. But he recognizes another possibility, and this brings us to the big idea for today. This is what we want to take away. The good life is not a human achievement to be gained. It is a gift that only comes from God. There's something really important here that can help you find joy in life. The good life is not a human achievement to be gained. It is a gift that only comes from God. And so as we look at our goads and nails this morning, our application, I just want to break this statement down a little bit and think about it. The good life is not a human accomplishment, right? Now, we hear the opposite all the time. From the time we start kindergarten till the time we graduate from high school and college and go into the workforce, right? Those who are high achievers are awarded and held up, whether it's academics or athletics or social activities. We, we think that, that accomplishment and achievement is the way to get the most out of life. I don't know if you've ever seen Maslow's um, Hierarchy of Needs. Um, I saw this pyramid first in high school back in 1987, believe it or not. And, uh, and, it, and it, I've, I've remembered it ever since. But this is a very popular uh, psychological and sociological tool that describes human behavior and human needs. And you notice, you know... 
that the basic needs are on the bottom, like food, water, warmth, rest, security, and then you get a little higher up the pyramid and you have your psychological needs, you get to esteem needs of prestige and feelings of accomplishment, and then you get to the top of the pyramid of self-actualization, achieving one's full potential. And I remember my teacher saying, there's very few people that actually make it to the top of the pyramid, right? <laughs> That's the way we look at life. And notice the words here, self-actualization, achieving one's full potential, feelings of accomplishment. And this is what our society does, right? Our idols are those who have achieved the highest levels in business and sports and entertainment. The Elon Musks and the Bill Gates, the LeBron James and the Tom Brady's, the Beyonce's and the Jay-Z's or whoever you like, right? I mean, there's, these, are, these are the people that we hold up in our society and we assume that they have reached the top of the pyramid and are living the best possible life on earth. And we all, in our smaller ways, are chasing our dreams and trying to find the best life for ourselves that we can accomplish. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 exposes this as a lie. And we usually find out the truth about the desperate lives that many of these rich and famous people live only after they die. You know, I don't know if you've ever watched uh, documentaries about rich and famous people. I always find them kind of fascinating. Um, but they all have one common thing about them. They're, they're usually some of the most depressing and saddest things I ever watch, right? Um, Lisa and I watched one on, on Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz a, a while back. They were like some of the most rich and famous people in the 1950s. I Love Lucy, you know, was a popular show. And Desi Arnaz built um, these Hollywood production studios. They were the largest ever uh, at that point in time. And, and I remember that documentary, they quoted Desi Arnaz as saying, the things I had worked so hard to build I began to hate, you know, it, was, it ruined their marriage, it ruined their family life, you know, it was just so sad, and, and last summer we saw the movie Elvis, I don't know if you've seen that, but again, we walked out of the, the theater and we're just like, man, that's one of the most depressing, saddest movies we've ever seen, you know, I mean, and he was the king of rock and roll at his time, you know, and, and you know, I think of the, 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 the uh, documentary on Steve Jobs, that's another one that comes to my mind, it's just so sad, so depressing, it reminds me of Jesus' words in Mark 8, 34 to 36. And I think when Jesus said these words, he was thinking about Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and 2. He said this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Again, this is the opposite of self-actualization. It's not pursuing your highest self, but denying yourself. Right? Let go of the striving for accomplishment. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it, and here's Ecclesiastes' words here, right? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I think that's what we see in the experience of Solomon. He gained the whole world, and yet it ended in just sorrow and vexation. The true good life is found in denying ourselves giving up our trying to achieve it and following Jesus. And that leads us to the final goad and nail here. The good life is a gift that only comes from God. 
Now, what do I mean by the good life here? Well, I'm just, I'm just keeping with the words here with Solomon. It's, it's living a life, an ex, having experience of wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Jesus would later call this bearing fruit in John 15. He, and, and, and when we think of bearing fruit, we think of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love and joy and peace. This is the good life. Living a life that's, that's filled with the Holy Spirit and experiencing love and joy and peace. Paul said that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the good life. Now, experiencing the good life does not mean that we escape the vanity of life under the sun right now. It doesn't mean that everything is perfect and easy. That's not what we're talking about. But rather, the idea is that within the vanity and the crookedness of this life, we can escape the futility of trying to accomplish the good life through our wisdom and knowledge that ends in sorrow and vexation, and instead we can experience... God's gift of wisdom, knowledge, and joy. How do we experience this? Who does God give this gift to? Is it completely random or mysterious, like some kind of divine lottery that we have no clue as to who gets the good stuff and who doesn't? No, not at all. It's clearly stated right here that he gives the gift to those who please him. And God has made it very clear how we can please him in his word. In fact, that's one of the main purposes of the Bible is so that we can know how to live lives that are pleasing to God. Let me give you just a few examples. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith is at the very foundation Faith and trust in God is the way that we please him. This, we see this from the very first man that God chose, Abraham. He was a man of faith. He believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Think about that word, our ambition. What is your ambition? Paul says, our ambition is to be pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, th these verses right here are virtually a restatement of the conclusion of Ecclesiastes that we'll get to in due time. It's at the end of the book. It says after every, the author says, after everything has been said, this is the conclusion. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the all of mankind. And so the New Testament uh, restates this here in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, he's praying for the Christians at Colossae, and he says this, I pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Paul was praying that they would be pleasing to God and know how to do that. This is the definition of a Christian. A Christian is one who pleases, lives to please God. Remember the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? This is what the Christianity is, Christian life is about. This is what we have been saved for to love God, to live a life pleasing to him. Now, I think it's really 
this is part of what it means to work out our salvation. How do we receive this gift from God? How do we stop trying to achieve and accomplish everything? And how do we receive God's good gift from him? And it starts in our salvation, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast, right? Now, we usually think of that verse in terms of our initial salvation and the forgiveness that we receive in Christ. And that's right, but that's just the beginning, right? The whole life that we begin to live when we first come to know him and trust him and follow him, then our whole life is a life of learning how to live, walking with the Lord, receiving his good gifts, so how do we do this? Well, we, we, we start by just praying, right? God, help me to know how to walk with you. Help me to, to receive your good gifts. Show me where I'm trying to grasp on to life and the good life and trying to make it about my accomplishment and my achievement and help me to learn how to receive your gifts. And then we just learn, we, we, we read the Bible and God sanctifies us and we learn how to live this life. There's a really interesting verse in 1 Timothy 4.4. It says, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. That means matcha lattes with oat milk and honey are really a good thing, right? <laughs> it's just, I need to be sanctified. I need to not overindulge in God's good gifts, right? And so that's part of our sanctification, and it's different for each one of us. God works with us. He helps us come to understand how we can live this life with him. And so as I close, I just want to share one way that God has done this in my life. Um, I'm kind of a type A personality. As a young man, I was really excessively competitive and very ambitious. And uh, early on, I read a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It was really popular back in the 80s, you know, 90s. And uh, one of the things that it said uh, successful people do is that they set goals. And so I really went to the nth degree in setting goals. I took some seminars. I had this thing called the Life Development Portfolio. And um, every year I would try to have a retreat, get away, uh, re reflect on the last year, and then set goals for the New Year's. And I had like I had two pages of goals in every area of my life. I had five-year goals, 10-year goals, 20-year goals, life goals. I mean, I had goals, goals, goals. And I was tried to review them, you know, every other month or so. And I did this for about 20, 25 years. And about seven years ago, I was doing this at the end of the year. And, and uh, God made some things really clear to me. The first thing was, I, I rarely accomplished any of the goals I set out to accomplish. You know? so that was kind of discouraging. But the second thing was that... As I was reflecting, I realized that the best things in my life were not the things that I planned, were not the things that I set out to accomplish. The very best things in my life were like the, the things that came out of nowhere, gifts of God. And so I, that was the year I stopped my massive goal-setting planning, and I've been enjoying life a little bit more ever since. I still like to reflect at the end of the year, but it's, it's a reflection less on what I have done and what I have accomplished in the last year and more on what God has done in my life. And so I'm more thankful and I'm trying to recognize, God, what are you doing in my life? What do you want me to be aware of, right? And be looking for those things, be ready for those things, be trusting him for those things and be praying that I can respond 
a little better. I want to become less of an achiever and more of a receiver. <laughs>